This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Amongst the countries that we have talked about on this show as being important pieces to the global economy, one that we haven't talked a lot about is Russia. That is seemingly because the nature of the approach towards the global economy by President Vladimir Putin. Yet the drop in oil prices, the lost value of the Russian ruble, and the current recession that the country is going through have it putting into itself, uh, put it itself, I should say, into an economic crunch. To take a look further at those countries' economic woes and the effect on the global economy, we are joined here in the studio by Rudy Sill, who is a professor of political science and the SAS director of the Huntsman Program in International Studies and Business here at the University of Pennsylvania. And also joining us on the phone is Brenda Schaefer, who is an adjunct professor uh, at the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University. Rudy, good to see you again. Thanks for coming back. My pleasure. Thank you. Brenda, as always, great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Great to have you. Uh, a question for both of you. Rudy, I'll start with you. How important is what is happening to Russia a- an effect on the global economy right now? Well, it's certainly significant. Um, the drop in oil prices has put Russia into a much more complicated position. They were flying high two, three years ago with a lot of surplus cash, a lot of opportunities to do, have uh, – dramatic programs in terms of its geopolitical ambitions and its uh, new economic forays. And all of that has to be really scaled back dramatically. But is Russia Russia's problem with the contraction more significant than, say, China dropping off from 8% growth to down to 7 6% growth? I don't know. China seems to drive so much of the global economy mm-hmm. that relative to that, I think Russia's economic problems are more of a domestic issue. Uh, Russia is the sixth largest economy in the world, and it will have an impact, but it's not on the scale of uh, a China or an India. Brenda? Um, yeah, I think it's, it ha- it, we need to really um, ask a bigger question about the sanctions on, on, the, on Russia and what their effect are on the global economy. Because we really, you know, we've sanctioned small economies like Libya, like Iran, and even that's had, you know, in the case of Iran, even that's had an impact on the global economy. But sanction, sanctioning an economy that uh, at the time that, that European and Western sanctions were imposed on Russia was the eighth biggest economy uh, in the world. You know, we really don't have any theory about that, but, you know, what the impact is for all the trade partners and uh, um, I think it, may, it, might, it might not be so politically correct to discuss, well, you know, have we, um, in hurting Russia, have we also hurt ourselves? Um, but I think it is a discussion that, that we may, may need to take place. And I think in, as, as we approach in June renewal of san- European sanctions on, on Russia, I think that's a discussion that is going to take place. How much do you think that right now in, in the current uh, foray that we're in that, that these sanctions have kind of curtailed uh, the global growth at some level? Brenda? Yeah, on global growth, I can't say, I can say, you know, European Union statistics themselves, European Commission recently released a report that um, European GDP growth was, was hurt by about a half a percent uh, by, by the sanctions. Um, you know, Germany is Russia's biggest trade uh, or second biggest trading partner in, in, in Europe. Um, is really bearing the brunt of these sanctions, and and but it's it's difficult to really translate how much of that is specifically. Again, we don't have even a, a theory of what it means to sanction, you know, one of the larger economies in the world. What, what the implications are? 
Rudy? Yeah, I agree. I think uh, it's very, very hard to track the exact uh, effects of sanctions, even on Russia itself, let alone on the, the larger global economy. Uh, to me, the, the biggest uh, impact on Russia has been the drop in oil prices, which is really what has taken the bottom out. And that's what's made the sanctions important in the sense that it's cut off uh, opportunities to maybe cushion the blow of oil prices. So that is definitely having an impact. It's going to have uh, political implications. Uh, but I don't think they're on a scale that in, within Russia is so dramatic that we can afford to keep thinking about sanctions strictly in terms of bringing about regime change or pressuring uh, administrative change in Moscow. Um, it's much more, I think, a, a complex, nuanced issue, as Brenda was pointing out. And I think we start have to start looking at the European Union's uh, lower-hanging fruit. Uh, there are countries in Europe that are struggling. So even if the European Union as a whole might be able to survive this, I think countries like Greece, mm-hmm. Spain, um, Italy, they're, they're all struggling a lot more. And I think that these divisions are going to start coming out this year. But it is interesting that you're talking about a country that, as, as you alluded to, and, and Brenda did, that you have a leader that is more than willing to try and repatriate territories in and around Russia. And in some respects, the drop in oil price and the loss of that money has curtailed that activity a little bit uh, and maybe future uh, activities that he he would have wanted to do, uh, which obviously probably would have meant that the U.S. and other countries would have had to react to that. So in some respects, the, the, oil, the oil drop has been a benefit uh, for, for different pieces around the globe. That's to me or to Brenda? Yeah, you're, you're right. Um, well, I think we have to think a little bit harder about the, the starting presumptions of that. We're talking yeah. mostly about Crimea here. Yeah. Um, Russia has been much more muscular, much more assertive, on, especially in its own periphery. It, it had an incursion to Georgia when Medvedev was president. Um, it is definitely involved in eastern Ukraine. Uh, but these are all problematic issues right on its border. It hasn't been doing uh, dramatic large-scale attempts yeah. to shape the global economy or global um, peace, uh, except now we're seeing in Syria. And in Syria, it's not quite clear that the problems Russia is creating are greater than potential solutions that have now emerged as a result of uh, wider discussions. So I'm not all that convinced that the price of oil going down is necessarily making a problem. In fact, it might make Russia even more dangerous in some ways. Uh, It does curtail some things, but it also can create uh, a sense of panic that might lead to more uh, dangerous types of approaches than we've seen so far. So I'm not as anxious, I think, as most. Brenda? Yes, yeah, so, you know, Putin knows a lot about oil. He, I mean, you know, he, he came to power when the oil price was about $12, about $29, $29.5 in, in, in today's dollars. Right? And currency reserves at the time in Russia were $12 billion. Today they're about $350 billion with rainy day funds, about another $120 billion. So for, for him to think that, gee, this is a real crisis situation when, you know, he, he knows that, you know, since he's been in power, Russia's reserves have, even, you know, even, even grown. And he knows... Oil works in cycles, and this is the thing we have to remember all, all the time. We think whatever we have today is what we're going to have tomorrow. Well, it's yeah. the exact opposite in oil. Right now, we're setting the stage for the oil price spike. It seems funny, right, because all we're talking about is it collapsing every day, but it's precisely those collapsing, collapsing uh, trends that lead us to behavior such as non-investment in the oil sector, buying larger cars, you know, coming complacent about, about um, uh, conservation, and, and sets the stage for the oil price rise. So, so the thing is, Putin knows this. He's, you know, he's been in power since 1999, and you know, whether, it's, whether it's been as prime minister or as president, he knows these cycles. And, and uh, um, I think there's also a larger question of, you know, is there any connection between sanctions and modification of foreign policy behavior? And when mm-hmm. the price drop started, there was this huge glee, you know, that, 
this is going to, you know, change. Russia is going to pull out of Crimea, and Iran is going to stop its nuclear program. And um, you know, we, we don't see anything in, the, you know, the, any sort of modifying effect on the foreign policy behavior of of the oil producers. I mean, look at Russia's in Syria. Could, could we have imagined if someone would have said? five years ago, that Russia would be a major force in the Middle East. You know, and, yeah. and that we have a crisis between Saudi Arabia and Iran right now, the, t- the two most important you know, countries in the Gulf. And the U.S. says we're neutral, we don't have a position. And Russia, if at anything, you know, it does have a position and, and, and is active, right? So we couldn't even imagine a scenario like this five years ago, maybe not even a year ago, right? That, that, uh, um, so so I, I don't think that the drop in the price necessarily constrains uh, behavior, especially also these countries have very large currency reserves. We forget yeah. it's not just about the budget, it's about the reserves. But it, it also, I guess then, you expected, uh, Brenda, that, that Vladimir Putin will just basically play this out, as you said, because oil is cyclical, and, and just wait it out until the price of, of crude goes back up to $50, $60, $70 a barrel. Right. Well, one, it's that it's cyclical, so he knows eventually it's you know it's going to go back up. He, he he's he's presided over Russia through a number of these cycles. Two, with the devaluation of the the ruble, it's actually you know with with still uh, in oil in oil and gas income coming in 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 foreign currency, but being paid out in ruble, so it's it's helped them to uh, balance their budget better. I mean, still still with a deficit, but still still better. Um, and third, you know, we shouldn't use. American foreign policy tools to analyze, I would say, foreign governments in general, but specifically mm-hmm. authoritarian governments like Russia. I'm going to keep hearing here people saying, well, the polls in Russia say, oh, his popularity. I mean, first thing, polls all over the world are off, especially in, you know, even in Democratic, I think every election was called wrong by the polls in the last, uh, the last year, right? So our, our poll methodology is off. But certainly in Russia, I can't imagine... The person on the other line of the phone that gets a call about their political opinions and their opinions on the economy, right, that that, that would be indic- I mean, indicative of anything stronger. And also, you know, in these governments, the, the, the public sentiments are not necessarily translated into public action. So to think that somehow, because people are unhappy about the economy, that it's going to you know, bring down a government, um, I think it's often wishful thinking. You take, Rudy, a, a little bit of a historical view on, on Russia and their economy, uh, you know, going back a decade, decade and a half. And, and what is it about what they were back in 2000 that probably w- will eventually play out here in 2016 or 2017 if we go farther? Well, I think my take, the historical take uh, that I have leads me right to Brenda's conclusions. Yeah. I, I think uh, it is really a mistake to sit around waiting for frustrated uh, citizens uh, who are seeing inflation eat away at their savings suddenly rise up to bring down and demand regime change. Uh, I think if you look, and they too have a historical memory, uh, and perhaps a longer one than most uh, most investors, uh, yeah. certainly, and certainly American voters. And when they look back, they remember not just the 1990s, which was a period of utter chaos, a demographic decline, people weren't having kids. Yeah. during that time. It was a real social disaster at many levels, even though the economy structurally was becoming privatized. And then they also remember the more recent contraction. Um, the contraction of 2009 was 8%. Yeah. Uh, no one is remembering that baseline. Against that baseline, a 3.7% con- contraction from last year, it's not insignificant. It is having an impact. But Russians also have this memory that they rebounded from that. Um, and if uh, Putin's knowledge of political economy may not be on par with someone at Wharton, but he, uh, Brenda's right. He has has some, uh, some understanding of the way oil uh, politics works. He's the one who actually organized the, the reserve funds, the rainy day funds. Yeah. 
2004. This is not a c- country that is simply squandering oil wealth. They have used them in a targeted fashion. And I think the result has been that a, a population that more or less trusts the government to, at the moment at least, to keep things together, they have a longer time frame to work with. And I think Putin has a couple of years, three years maybe, to, to get himself out of this, this jam. So I take a longer view backwards and forwards. Yeah. Uh, and I don't see the crisis that people are trying to engineer. And, and I guess, uh, Brenda, because uh, of those rainy day funds, and I think you said they're they're still pretty well stocked, uh, that you know he does have a little time to play with. Uh, Putin does in this case. Right. Well, you know, I think that when we tend to analyze the state of um, oil-producing countries, you know, sort of the standard when you look at most in the, in the media is to look at, well, what's their budget balanced at and what's their revenue from oil and, oil and what's the gap? But you have to add a third element, and that is, well, okay, how much do they have in currency reserves? So how many years does that give them before there's really a, a, a strong, you know, physical manifestation, you know, in, uh, of, the, of the economic decline? Um, and so when you have, you know, Russia has one of the, you know, Russia has huge currency reserves. Saudi Arabia has uh, huge currency reserves. Um, actually, the countries that are probably more vulnerable, and you look at like the gap between the, the, bu- the budget, the oil price versus reserves, I would, I would you mention you know, Venezuela and Nigeria, which are already seeing the instability there. Yeah. I mentioned actually Iran um, you know, is, is, is another case. So, so you know, those are the places we should look at first where the currency reserves are, 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 not, that, are not that large. And generally, that's countries also with very large populations that, that in order to balance the budget with all the subsidies, um, you, you, they need a very large uh, budget. Brazil in that group as well, I would guess? Well, um, not as dependent on yeah. oil export revenue, yeah. but they were counting on shale oil development yeah. uh, at a, on a large scale, and they're going to have to scale back on that given yeah. lack of profitability shown there, uh, the U.S. as well, for that matter. Yeah. Uh, this is an interesting time, I think, with the oil prices. I mean, there are definitely, I mean, OPEC was formed to f- maintain prices, maintain and control supply. And of course, with Russia as a player, Iran and Saudi Arabia not seeing eye to eye, Iranian oil back on the market, shale oil development. There's just so many players trying to push each other out of the market, sure. uh, and everyone is trying to hold on to market share. So you're seeing a collective action problem that I think is spiraling a little bit right well, now. And, and Brenda, also there is, is the piece to it is the natural gas as well, mm-hmm. which uh, the U.S. is obviously really starting to get uh, to be a bigger player in. And uh, one article talked about how the you know natural gas is going to be on the European market in the fairly near future, and that could have whatever effect uh, on, on Russia uh, as well. Well, you know, I think that's also a bit of a wishful thinking because yeah. you know still by current technologies. Um, gas that LNG, or liquefied natural gas, um, is still going to be more expensive than uh, pipeline gas from, from Russia. And in fact, natural gas prices in Europe are, are way down right now because of the oil link contracts. Russia has always insisted on oil link contracts, and you know, for years, the European Union has tried to work against this. Um, but actually, now the consumers are really enjoying the oil link contracts, and you know, and, and no, no one's complaining about them because it's actually bringing you know low, low gas prices as well. Yeah. So I think that um, still pipeline gas, um, unless technology you know makes LNG cheaper, is still going to be the king in Europe. And and uh, and actually, the most vulnerable markets that are dependent on Russian supplies are, are generally you know landlocked countries, and so really LNG American LNG supplies can't can't reach those markets. They do. The U.S. exports are affecting Europe in the sense that since the U.S. isn't importing more, uh, isn't importing gas anymore, then there's more liquidity in European markets, more options. So in a sense, it's 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 affecting even without American, you know, homegrown gas reaching Europe, it's affecting market trends around yeah. the world just because the U.S. isn't importing uh, more gas. Rudy. 
Yeah, I just wanted to add that I think we do have to look a lot closer at uh, the demand in developing countries. Again, this is a longer-term forecast, sure. more than it is anything about the next year or two. But looking ahead, the population growth in the world is mostly coming from developing countries. The industrialization that is still going on in developing countries, even as the West has moved on to a post-industrial uh, era. And so in that context, you can imagine that you know, if Russia has some time to reorganize itself, you've already seen a $400 billion deal with China. Yep. Uh, Russia just signed a big contract with India. And those are just the two dynamic economies in, in, in Asia. If you actually add up-and-coming African countries, there's going to be demand still for oil and gas. The climate change deal is about Europe uh, adjusting a lot more than the developing countries. The developing countries bought themselves a lot of time using fossil fuels. So I don't know if Russia will be quick enough or clever enough to kind of reorganize its, uh, its economy export patterns. But globally, I think there will be continuing demand for quite some time. And if they can adjust to that reality that much of the demand will now start coming from the developing world, I think there's still uh, a lot of uh, geopolitical capital they can stack up over time. So even even if oil prices do stay down in the 30s in that realm for the next, you know, two, three, four, five years, whatever that, that time frame may be, in, in terms of Russia's economy, because they have the reserves and because they have all these other deals uh, put in place, it, the the price the the amount that they lose uh, in some of the hedges that they may have put in place, you know, I saw one article that talked about they that their budget this year basically talked about a fifty dollar a barrel price kind of being the benchmark for them this year. It's still a little bit almost like you know a little bug a little bug bite on your leg. It's not going to be that that much of an effect, right, Brenda? Um, well, it, uh, yes, yes, and no. I would say okay. that if. Uh, it, if oil indeed stays down in you know the thirty band between for the next five to seven years, um, you know th- this could be problematic for Russia and other other major oil exporters, and, and 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 again problematic for the United States. Let's not forget that the U.S. is now an oil you know producer. Yeah. Um, but it, I would I mean where the trend is going. I mean I would say like on one hand, if we look over the past forty five years when we've been you know really tracking oil oil prices on a, on a you know on an almost hourly basis. Um, $30 is actually the average over this period, 30 right. in, in today's dollars. This is not an historical low. This, there's nothing exceptional about this period. What was exceptional was actually the high oil prices um, between 2012 and 2014. Um, but on, uh, on the other hand, if I look at the tremendous drops that have been taking place in in uh, uh, oil investment in new oil production. In 2015, we had the largest drop in history in, in investment in oil production. And at the same time, as Rudy pointed out, that you know, the Chinese economy, it's, maybe its growth is not going, it's not going at the same level, but it's mm-hmm. still actually growing. And even its oil, you know, its oil demand has not been going, it's, it hasn't been going down, just the, the, the growth of oil demand hasn't been, hasn't been going up significantly. So we still have a lot of uh, this, I, I still think in 2016, we not everything is set for oil to stay the same. And still with the instability in the Gulf, we've discussed this on the show before, Saudi Arabia, Iran, you know, to, it, Iraq even, it's, it, it, still there's some events there that could knock off production there. And so um, it's not clear that, that what is happening today is, you know, going to stay for, although on the other hand, if we look historically, there's, the, you know, this, this is in the historical price, price band mm-hmm. average. 
We're talking with Brenda Schaefer of Georgetown University, also uh, Rudy Sill, who is a professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania. 844 Wharton is the number if you'd like to ask a question or have a comment. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call or via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, Brenda, outside of the oil, which obviously is is kind of the big gorilla in the room, uh, what are the other areas of the Russian economy that that maybe they can even look to build on even further as a as a an additional piece to kind of build up. Obviously, agriculture is kind of a big thing for for Russia uh, over the course of their history. But are there other pieces as well? Well, you know, I think we have to talk about the the myth of diversification. You know, okay. the, the standard the standard line for for um, com- commodity and especially oil and gas uh, and mineral dependent economies is they need diversification, right? And, 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 and I'm sure it's taught at the Wharton School. And, but the, the reality is that they don't succeed in diver- diversifying. I mean, that there's just the, there's nothing that could really compete yeah. uh, in the economy with, with the, the profitability of, of oil and gas and, and, and minerals. And um, the most talented labor goes into those sectors and um, the the Dutch disease of basically, you know, making their local locally produced goods uh, unprofitable, and especially, especially agriculture. So the question is, I mean, can they? Can they? Is it is it just a question of government policy, or is it really impossible for oil and gas producers to diversify? Maybe I throw that to Rudy. If uh, yeah, I think uh, the, there's a difference between the government and the main uh, stakeholders in the big oil companies, even yeah. if the government is running 51% uh, of Gazprom or Rosneft. Those companies are still flush with profit. They're still sure. making good money right now at $30 a barrel. Uh, and uh, I think there is money that is actually going into the Russian economy, not necessarily in the in the control of the budget. Um, but that aside, I think we have to remember that Russia is a little bit different from a lot of the other oil producers in that it was the Soviet Union. It did push for a sort of autarky economic development. As a result, it has infrastructure and industry. Mm-hmm. Some of it may be collapsing in need of repair, but there's a lot of material out there, a lot of towns that are producing steel. There's one town that's actually been reporting uh, more employment, more investment, more production in steel uh, because there's less competition from outside sure. uh, steel exporters coming in. So I think uh, this is not as undiversified as many people imagine this to be. It's not Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's not one of those countries with 90% of its budget coming from oil. It's about 50%, uh, 20% of its GDP. That means 80% of its GDP is coming from somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, and if you actually track non-energy sectors growth between 2000 and 2008, which is when the Russian economy grew that, at its fastest clip over several years, in that eight-year span, the non-energy sectors actually grew at the same rate as the GDP growth, and it was the oil and gas sector that was actually growing at a slightly slower rate. So I think uh, it's a mistake to think that we're going to be able to cow this country into submission on foreign <laughs> policy objectives just with oil and gas politics. Which, which I guess in some respects takes you back to the sanctions part of this and the fact that you know even though if you really don't know what kind of an effect the sanctions have had, uh, you, you can't be over-optimistic that they had the desired effect that you'd probably like to see anyway. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'm one of those people who, while we're looking at day-to-day administrative you know, decisions in D.C. about politics and foreign mm-hmm. policy, I also think about the human development aspect. And overall, Russia's human development level has gone up tremendously, right. taking advantage of its resources. And I think if we keep that in mind from the population standpoint, this is not an administration that has failed. Um, they will get antsy after five years of unemployment rising and yeah. you know 
pensions being eaten up and all of that. No question about it. Everyone would. Um, but I think uh, the idea that, we, that circulates in Washington that somehow we're going to be able to quickly change the regime, uh, even if we do, even if Putin dies tomorrow, there is actually an elite there that is not just a bunch of KGB spies sure. that know what they're doing. There's a lot of economists, people with law degrees, people who have been studying the world political economy. Uh, I think uh, that doesn't mean that you know life will be great for the entire world, but it does mean that if, uh, we have to think a little bit more in a more sophisticated and nuanced way in terms of how we are approaching Russia. Brenda? I completely agree with uh, Rudy, Rudy's approach in terms of, you know, not underestimating Russia. And to think, you know, it, it, it's strange. America is one of the only countries I know where people might change their vote, you know, based on the inflation rate or employment rate. And, and uh, um, But people in a lot of other countries are much more dedicated to specific political approaches and um, and, and, and and nationalism, for instance, and uh, yeah, just to think that some economic trend is going to change the way they view their country. I think I think it's it's quite different outside the United States. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.